Hello and welcome to another episode of Conversations on Consent. I'm your host, Elisa Yanacone, and this is my co-host, Nico Drimaka. Hello, I'm happy to be here and welcome and thank you for joining. Today we're having a really important conversation revolving around consent education. And our guest, Sarah Casper, is a consent educator. She's also the founder of Comprehensive Consent. So Sarah teaches mostly parents how to seek for consent with their children. So besides from theory and law, both also important, today we will probably get to know more what consent means for the practice in our everyday life. Now, some of our listeners might find parts of our discussion triggering. If you need support, please visit the resources on our website. Practicing consent means both people are constantly navigating the situation. It is about both people interacting. Let's hear some of Sarah's quotes first and then dive into the discussion. When I started to take on this practice, I finally learned for myself what it actually meant to practice consent. It wasn't about necessarily getting a yes or a no. What determined true consent was being in safe communication about each other's bodies. Consent is kind of bodily autonomy in practice. It's saying, I'm only going to do to your body what you want to be done to your body, and you'll only do to my body what I want to be done to my body. Every person is responsible for their own feelings. So when I talk about rejection, I often talk about acknowledging the no and then kind of like handling the no. I say that I have a social emotional approach to consent. So it's very different from most other definitions out there. The one that I'm working with now is consent is the practice of creating and nurturing a mutually designed experience. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We were wondering if you could just tell us why you think it's important that we have conversations revolving around the topic of consent. Yeah, ooh, that's that's a, a big question. There are so many reasons, but I think it really boils down to consent is, learning about consent is part of, or I think should be part of just, everyone's social, emotional skills, education. It's how to uh, respect someone else's boundaries, how to deal with um, hearing boundaries, and how to make sure that you feel safe and the other person feels safe within an interaction. And if you don't learn how to do that, you're going to end up modeling, you know, whatever you see around and from the statistics on, you know, gender violence and, and other statistics that are out there, it's very clear that uh, we need some help. We need some teaching, explicit teaching in doing so. And where do you think do these conversations need to take place then? I think it's a, a conversation that's truly for all people. I think it looks it looks different depending on who you are, but they should be taking place everywhere. So a conversation, you know, even at home between a parent and a child about what consent looks like when it's the parent's job to take care of their child, but the child also has bodily autonomy. And that's going to be a different conversation than between um, two partners who are adults and romantically or sexually involved. That's going to be a different kind of conversation uh, between an older child and their parent is going to look different too. Um, so they, these conversations can really be happening everywhere, uh, but there's, a, I think, a solid foundation that really needs to be happening when uh, people are young and their kids. 
And certainly we want to talk to you a lot about bodily autonomy. But before we get to that topic, we're just wondering, what is it that led you to taking a role that is in this arena of consent? I I come at it from two angles. The first is that my educational backgrounds in psychology, uh, specifically working with kids, so teaching them social emotional skills, behavior, uh, emotion regulation, things like that. That's that's the the more professional side of things. Uh, but I also can't talk about how I started in consent work without talking about acrobatics because I. Um, I'm an acro yoga practitioner, which for those who aren't familiar with what that is, it's a it's an acrobatic acrobatic art form that involves two people. So instead of a person and an apparatus like trapeze or aerial silks or you know a hoop, uh, it's just people. And when I started to take on this practice, I finally learned for myself what it actually meant to practice consent. It wasn't about you know necessarily getting a yes or a no. What determined true consent was being in safe communication about each other's bodies. So you can't, you know, do a flip off of someone's shoulders if you're not communicating about what feels good to their body and what feels right. And you're not going to feel safe to do that if you haven't kind of scaffolded other skills with them first. And so while I didn't, I, I learned how to implement what I implement kind of from psychology and my schooling, but so much of the heart of what I do is understanding that consent truly isn't about sex. It's about being in honest, respectful communication which, with each other about your bodies. Absolutely. So when you, when you have these different angles then, which are like one is so physical or has been so physical and the other is the uh, theoretical or scientific approach. How did it uh, change for you, maybe, your understanding of consent once you brought those things together? Yeah. Oh, my God. It changed everything. It changed everything because it really, I think, um, I really approached it from kind of, I thought about consent very legalistically. So very much in terms of, is is it a yes or is it not a yes? Is it assault or is it not assault? And I ran into this problem, I think, in my own personal life where, you know, someone would ask me, what about implicit consent? And I was like, uh, I don't know. Or what about you've had one drink? So you're not drunk, but, you know, you have one drink. Is that consent or not consent? And I was like, uh, I don't know. That's difficult. But this reframing of it's not about a yes or a no, but it's being in respectful communication kind of gets all those questions out of the way because you start to realize, okay, how am I practicing implicit consent? What does that look like? How am I practicing consent when I've had one drink? What does that look like? Or when they've had a drink, what does that look like? And what, is, what are the social structures in place? What are, what is the physical surroundings? How do they impact it? How am I making sure that I'm safe and that I'm helping them be safe as opposed to these just like easy binary answers. Um, it's, it's a lot, uh, it's a lot harder to grasp thinking about it like this, but I also think that it, it gets to what we truly 
want out of a consent practice, or at least what I want out of a consent practice. Yeah. And I mean, I think we've we've constantly heard about campaigns that say, you know, no means no, yes means yes. And then the whole space for implicit consent doesn't really exist. Could you just elaborate a little bit more on this? You know, what is implicit consent? Where do we sometimes find it? Uh, how do we approach that field? <laughs> yeah. Um, so the first time I think your, your body is touching another person's body, I don't think consent can be implicit. I think you need to have a communication because you don't you don't know what implicit consent looks like for them. I think that's really I think that's really difficult. However, once you're in a relationship with someone for a year and you've had conversations about what you like, what you don't like, what your tickle spots are, you know, how how um like if you like PDA or like how hard you like to be massaged or how soft you like to be massaged, those conversations, you can start to practice implicit consent where there's checking in and you're more receptive to their body languages, where there's been that trust established, where they feel safe to say no at any time and where you had have had practice checking in. So the, the practice of implicit consent, I do think is totally possible, but it requires, it's, it's, I think, relationship and situation specific. Because it needs to be specific to the context, we also have to go back to getting to know ourselves. And before we go into communication with another person, we need to be aware of our own biases and assumptions based on previous experience. And this is all to avoid misinterpretation. What do we truly need to practice consent and also communicate this to other people accurately? That's an, uh, that's an amazing point and not the point I was making. Like it, it, it came from there, but that's a totally different point where you're correct of what do you, I think that self-work is so important, right? Of examining what do I consider consent for someone? Like how does, how does the fact that I am maybe older than someone impact that? Or how do I, how am I in my everyday life now thinking about their body language and am I thinking about it? Right. I think that's such an important question before, um, before getting to the nitty gritty of, yes, it does have to be informed. It does have to be, um, you know, freely given all of that, but what does that mean for you in your life for something to be freely given? Like, how do you practice that now? And where do you need to adjust and what are you doing really well? And where are you kind of messing up and you need more practice because it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing thing in our everyday life. So they said, it comes up everywhere. It looks different in different places, but how are you embodying it throughout? So when we're approaching a topic like, you know, the yes means yes campaign, what are the strengths of that? But then also what are the failings? Yeah, I think yes means yes. It doesn't necessarily get into, right, those the power dynamics that can exist of why someone's saying yes. There, there's explicit coercion, right? And then there, like threats, right? I, I'm going to threaten you until you say yes. And then there's also just like, I'm your boss, so I'm not threatening you, but there's, you know what it means. You know that there are other implications. And, and that's, that is one of the failings of yes means yes, is it really emphasizes for me, it really emphasizes again, this like one time answer Mm. as opposed to this ongoing communication. It also doesn't allow for the implicit consent, but for me, I think really the, the ongoingness of it, it's like, you got the yes, but that doesn't mean 
you're in the clear now from here on out. It's not a blanket yes. Right. It's not a blanket yes. And so how do you explain to someone that yes means yes and it's ongoing? I, I also recently did a post about like consent isn't the same as permission. You know, in terms of language, sure, it's a synonym, but with how we think about consent now, it can't be seen as just permission because that doesn't in- take into account all these other factors. And so when when teaching consent, I think if we limit it to just yes means yet, we miss out on the important part, which is how how is that person feeling and how are you feeling and are you talking about those feelings. It's very, very feely, you know, but like, how are you talking about those feelings? Are you talking about expectations? Are you talking about, you know, what your past experiences are and what you're excited about, but what you're nervous about and what you want to try, but want to try cautiously. Um, and so I think that's where, where yes means yes, uh, doesn't do justice. And the second I don't know if it's the second thing. I've said a lot of things, but sure, we'll call it the second thing. <laughs> uh, the second piece of this, as you said, right, like who, where does the guilt go? And I think that's another false dichotomy within yes means yes, is that it's one person asking and another person giving an answer, where sometimes that's how it works out. But practicing consent means both people are constantly navigating or continuously navigating the situation. And if one person does a misstep and going back to what Nico said about, you know, making consent mistake, if one person misreads the body language, it doesn't mean that the whole thing is now like assault. Depending on what the misread was, they can say, oh, oh, sorry, I misread your body language. That smile means you're nervous, not happy. Okay, now I see. And then three minutes later, the other person you know, uh, does something and they're like, oh, I know we did that last time, but I don't want it this time. And they're like, oh, okay, my bad. Right. And there's that ongoing communication of it's not just this one time. Yes. It's not this one person doing something to another person. It's, it's both people interacting. It's not a one-time check-in that's valid forever and ever, but rather a continuous verbal and also non-verbal process in which we have to be touching base over and over. So boundaries play a role here. And again, that means both sides have to set them as somebody that's either on the sending or receiving end. How much are we actually talking about boundaries here? I think talking about boundaries is part of it. I think also what maybe you're getting at is talking about like the accountability piece. Boundary setting really only has to do with the actions of a single person. How is the actions of a single person responding? So, um, this comes up kind of in, um, this comes up a lot for women, I think. And, and because we're so often socialized not to set boundaries, we really have to learn how to set boundaries, but we also have to learn how to ask for what we want. We also have to learn how to accept rejection. We also have to learn how to be accountable. And so setting boundaries, isn't the entirety of consent. That's only going to, to get you so far because first of all, that's not like there's, there's more to human interaction that I, I want for people, but also because um, it puts, it kind of puts the onus on the person setting boundaries yeah. where the responsibility belongs to both people. And if it belongs to one person more, it's actually for the person engaging in the action the, yeah. or the asker, if you will. So yeah, that's boundary setting is hugely important, but um, I think the asking 
or the starting the conversation and the the navigating uh, specifics and handling a no are equally, if not more important. I think all people need all of those skills. Everything that you're saying just makes so much sense to me. If, and if only we could actually apply that responsibility on both sides, because as you said, you know, setting boundaries, at least for me, feels like a lifelong process because every time I'm like, oh, new boundary I didn't realize was there. Oh, it's oh, oh. And I'm always pushing it back and forth and navigating and it's challenging. And, you know, for me to be super firm on my boundaries means that I have kind of trial run that and had the experience of setting up that line, I often find that I'm learning as I go. And so I'm setting my boundaries as I go because new experiences emerge that I hadn't considered. How do we, in this society, right, how do we learn to navigate that line? I mean, you've obviously said uh, we need to be better at setting boundaries and also the, the other person needs to be better at um, being respectful and, you know, withdrawing. Tell me more about this concept of rejection and how we can be better at, at rejection and how that would play into this. Yeah, I, I want to answer that question. But first, something that came up when you said, like talking about setting boundaries is I, I think one thing that people really struggle with, right, with, with setting those boundaries is, is how do I tell someone who I've let cross this boundary for so long, now I'm going to tell them, that like I have this boundary. I don't want to feel like a hypocrite. And I think calling on others for help. And by that, I mean, telling someone I'm working on boundary setting. So in our relationship, right. So especially when it's someone you're close with, not necessarily like the grocer at the you know supermarket, but when it's someone you're, you're, you're in a relationship with saying like, Hey, I'm working on boundaries. And so I'm going to try some new ones. I hope you can help me you know, in setting boundaries and then they can say what they're working on and we can all help each other because that's all part of it, that it's this, it's a process. It's not this one person has one set of responsibilities that they are responsible for on their own. And the other person has the other ones. Mm -hmm. I just, I think that's a false dichotomy. Um, but back to your question about, uh, rejection, (sighs) (laughs) rejection is not easy. It can be really easy to, to take it personally, depending on what kind of our core beliefs are about ourselves that have been ingrained since, since childhood. Um, and then there's also social factors, uh, where people are saying, you know, don't accept a no, uh, ask for forgiveness, not for permission, Uh, take what's yours. Um, and so it can be, and also the, um, especially again, for, for men to, to be told, right. They being rejected is a defeat. It means they are not being a fully man. Um, and of, of course we're going to have problems with gender violence when that's what men are told. We've, we've set up this system. They have individual responsibility, but also we haven't set up an environment where it's safe for them to hear a no and know that it is, doesn't mean that they're any less. And same for, for, for women too, that they're not any less just because they heard a no. It just means it wasn't compatible. It just means, yeah, it just means it wasn't compatible. Um, I think another part of that, a lot of times with consent, the question isn't even asked. It's not even like yes means yes. So it feels like yes means yes doesn't encompass it because sometimes you just go for it, right? It's that implicit. It's her, her body language, their body language said I could do it. And so they don't ask. And I think another piece of rejection is that sometimes when you ask it, 
saying stop is saying is harder than saying no. And so if you don't ask, it's harder for you to not get what you want. The example I sometimes use is if your boss um, just starts make, giving you um, a paycheck with less money in it. That's very different than if your boss goes up to you and says, can I start giving you less money? Right there, you have a clear way to say no. But if they've already done it, now you have to find a way to go tell them to stop doing the thing they've already done. It's, it's, it's more difficult. And I think the reason that they do people do that is right. Because it's easier to ask for forgiveness than ask for permission, because asking for permission means it's more likely for you to be rejected. And so we have an issue also with not just people aren't accepting a no, but people aren't asking because they're scared of hearing a no. And I think that's also part of consent education is teaching that it's okay to ask and get a no, and it's okay um, to be in the middle of something and hear a no. There's a big chance in it, right, if we open up. Absolutely. I, I trust yeses way more after I've heard a no from that person. When they've said no to me, I trust that their yes is coming from a true place. Yeah. I trust that it's not, they're not just saying yes to appease me or to people please me. They're saying, they're saying yes because they actually want it. And especially when we're talking about sexual consent, I only want, to, like, when I know someone wants something, that gets me excited, right? That's where people say, like, consent is sexy. Like, that's where it is. If someone says yes to me, but every single time I've asked them for everything, anything, they've said yes. I don't know. There, I don't know what to believe. That can't be true. It's. Um, I actually have a video that I'm putting out soon. That's that's um, like a reel on on Instagram. That's making. That's kind of mocking people who say I'm into everything. Like, no. Like, trust me. No, you're not. Like, you're not into everything. You don't have to give me a whole list of what you're into and what you're not into. But let's start talking about generally what you like and what you don't like from your experience or from what you've seen and, you know, noticed your body sensations like you're not into everything. So, yeah, so I um, I think that very much goes along with with the um, what you had said about when they say no, there's like a trust there. But also allowing us the possibility of saying I like this and I don't want that. That's something that sometimes we have to give ourselves permission for. And there was the term that you used earlier, which was bodily autonomy. And I just wanted to kind of move into this. What is bodily autonomy and how can it be applied within this context? Yeah, I, I usually define bodily as autonomy as um, means that every person has the right to make decisions about their body so long as it doesn't infringe upon the rights of others. Um, so if my body wants to throw a punch, I can't do that just because my body wants to, if I'm going to be punching another person or someone else's property, right? That infringes upon their rights. And so that's kind of the limit of it. Um, and that I think is, I think consent is kind of bodily autonomy in practice or consent upholds bodily autonomy. It's saying, you know, I'm only going to do to your body what you want to be done to your body, and you'll only do to my body what I want to be done to my body. Power dynamics are so important to consider when it comes to consent seeking and being asked for consent. 
Consent is contextual and relational. And Sarah explains it very well that sometimes power can be very subtle. Oftentimes it stems from three variables, knowledge, networks, or resources. And depending on how much access any given person has, their power can be greater or lesser in any given situation. So in Sarah's case, the example of someone's experience level is a clear power boost for them. The same goes for having more information over a situation than the other person, which can also be part of deception, which is one form of assaulting a person that is also more subtle. You can practice body autonomy, but how is it influenced when there is power at play? It still exists. The practice just looks different. Um, and it's the responsibility of the person in power to uphold that practice. Um, I don't know if you've seen Spider-Man, but there's the line in there of with great power comes great responsibility. Yes. <laughs> I, I quote Spider-Man more than I thought I would as a consultant. Wow. I feel like I need to go back and watch which one though. Cause there's, there's like a million. I do think it's the first. Okay. I think it's the first. <laughs> um, but it's the truth. If you have power, then you have responsibility. And that can look like power in terms of, you know, very, I think, clear power like age or um, your relationship in terms of, you know, boss, employee, mother, child, maybe. But it also has more, um, it has a lot of subtleties too. Like if someone is over at my house, there is a power dynamic. It's my space. If I just like, bring us into my bedroom and sit down on my bed that that sets up a situation whereas instead it's it's not their job to say can we sit on the couch instead it's my job to say uh do you want to sit on the couch or um I'm also cool with hanging in my bedroom um but I don't know if that's I don't I don't think it's weird you know and like it's it's going to be awkward you know especially the first time when you're navigating it but it's important to to show that person that just because you have power, it doesn't mean that they don't get a choice of what their body is or where it is and things like that. Um, I think uh, experience is another kind of subtle power dynamic. If you're, um, you know, trying something new and one person has done it before and the other person hasn't, not just telling them, it'll be fine, it'll be fine, it'll be great, you're gonna love it but actually saying like, this is what my experience was. Here's what I'm thinking it'll look like. If you want to give it a try, let's talk it through. Mm. And, and showing them that, that the power doesn't, that you are using your power to empower them rather than to abuse your power and infringe upon their rights because you have the ability to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Or I would say also a common abusive uh, sentence would be oh it's normal to feel that way it has to feel that way right Absolutely. i was now um why you were talking about this uh, example of sitting on the bed sitting on the couch for a moment it came up to me as if i should always seek a way of communication where i always leave the door open to at least two paths or if not more do you have some kind of riverbanks to give us how we could make our first steps or second steps as students practicing consent? Yeah, you in in psychology, especially when working with kids, what you've called what you've said is called forced choice. I hate that that's the name of it because it has the word forced in it. But the idea is to help your child, you know, understand their sense of autonomy um, and sometimes to help just like 
not have that, what they call like analysis paralysis, um, is to give them two options, right? Like, what do you want to wear this outfit or that outfit? And it just gets the day going. Um, because if they have seven outfits to choose from, they're overwhelmed. And also because if they want to wear their, you know, princess costume to school, you're like, no, 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 it's these two options. It's one or the other. You get choice, but it's limited to, you know, these two. Um, and that's an absolutely, uh, I am always teaching specifically when I teach parents about implementing consent in the home, I always remind them of that. So, right. They have to go to the doctor's office, but they can choose which arm to get the vaccine in. Um, you know, they walk into the house, right? Would you like to sit on the bed or a couch? Would you like to, um, have a good night kiss or, um, you know, should I just text you tomorrow? Something like that always gives them a way out. So it's not just saying no, it's saying yes to something, but it's something else. It definitely makes it easier for the person. You're spot on. I mean, we're in this really weird time where I feel like parents and, you know, myself as well, I'm not a parent, but we're all learning consent. But at the same time, we're placed in a role of teaching the next generation's consent. So could you just give us a bit of a reflection on how do we navigate this teacher-student relationship when we ourselves haven't even maybe properly defined what consent fully means in our life? I would say name it tell the person like, tell, yeah, I'm still, I'm still learning how to do this. Um, I might get it wrong sometimes, you know, um, I think it's, and it's true for most practices, anything that's a practice or anything that's, that requires skills. Um, you're always going to be a, a learner and a teacher because there's always room for progress, right? Perfect doesn't exist. I, we spoke, when we spoke the other day, I talked about like, you can't be a perfect basketball player, right? You'll still make mistakes because you didn't get enough sleep that night or because you're playing a teammate that you've never played before. And, um, and so I think living in the space of, I, of, of both and of I'm continuing to learn and I'm going to do the best I can while I learn. Mm part of being human, right? Yeah. And also, I guess, how, how do we navigate that awkward space that you were discussing with Nico, which is when you are starting to implement that consent and then, you know, especially in a relationship, the whole, like, should people be asking, can I kiss you? Should people be asking, can I hold your hand? Like, where's the line in this? Is there a line? How, how do we make that judgment call? Yeah, this is one of, um, so speaking of tools, this is one of my, my favorite tools for people who are in relationships. Um, I learned it from uh, Nadine Thornhill and she talks about opt in and opt out. So when you have someone you're in a relationship with, you can have things that, um, you opt into. So like, I don't like to be kissed in public. If you want to kiss me in public, you need to ask me first. Like that's not clear territory for you. However, uh, if you want to kiss me while we're at home, I'll opt out to that. I'll put that responsibility on myself to say no, if I'm not in the mood that night for whatever reason, like I'll let you know. And so that, because there are a lot of things, especially within, and again, I only rec really recommend this for people within like healthy, trusting relationships, but you have things of like, yeah, I know she likes shoulder massages, or I know he likes, you know, to have his hair tussled. Um, and you, and so no, you don't need to ask every time, as long as you've talked about whose responsibility it is 
to kind of say the no. And the responsibility should be on the person doing the action unless most of the time, like 99% of the time, the answer is going to be yes. And so just to make it easy, you know, the, the other person will say like, no, I'll put that responsibility on me. That's I, I'm, I'm cool with that. That's my decision. Mm, I like that. That's a good one. Um, and so just pushing forward on this, what about people that don't have these long-term relationships? And especially now that we're in post COVID environments, how do you basically start off on the right footing to be able to reach a point where you get to opting in and opting out? Yeah. Yeah. I think it can go a few ways. I think the first is, you know, being, you know, very explicit, you know, especially if it's a COVID situation, be like, I'm not sure how you're feeling about COVID. I'm not sure how I'm feeling about COVID. So like, I hope you can bear with me while like I navigate some of these things. Right. Um, the second thing that you can do is I, I so rarely use the words like, is it okay? And like, can I, because to me, those don't, those don't tell a person those don't give all of the information. Like, is it okay to kiss you? It's like, well, is it okay? Like, do you want to, or are you asking me if I want you to? Like when? (laughs) Yeah. Like why, why are we kiss? Yeah. It's just like, whereas if you say like, I had a great time tonight, I'd love to give you a kiss. Like, how would you feel about that is, is so much different. It says like, I like you and this is how I want to show my affection. And so I'm saying this thing, um, or like, or right on the opposite, be like, "I, I really enjoyed tonight. Um, but I'm still feeling a little COVID conscious. Um, I hope just like an elbow bump goodbye is okay. Okay. But, but wait, cause whose responsibility is it to make that person feel okay about the rejection? If you say no, is it on the person saying, you know, do I have to be more sensitive and go like, actually, uh, you know, I'm not feeling it right now, but, or maybe I'm just not feeling this in general. Is it on that person or is it on the other and just going, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, or is it on like, who, who does it fall on? Yeah. Um, so so two things. The first is like, no is a full sentence. And if you want an ongoing relationship with them, it's probably a good idea to give them some insight into how your mind works. So why are you saying no? You don't have to, but right. If you want them to understand where you're coming from, which if you're, you know, hoping for an ongoing relationship, I highly recommend, you know, then, uh, then that's a good idea. At the same time though, every person is responsible for their own feelings. So when I talk about rejection, I often talk about um, acknowledging the no and then kind of like handling the no. So acknowledging the no is, is kind of how we get away from coercion. So if someone just said no to me, you know, I'm just, I'm acknowledging it like, okay, cool. Or thanks for telling me um, anything like that. If I am truly hurt because I have stuff that I'm still working on with handling rejection, that doesn't belong to the person who just rejected me, I can talk to my therapist, my friend, I can meditate, I can, you know, kickbox, like whatever I need to do to, to manage the, the bigger emotion that is, is separate from that interaction right there, because I don't want to feel that person, that person to feel responsible for taking care of themselves or for, for me when they were just taking care of themselves. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
I like that a lot. I think, I don't know if you agree, but it points so much also what you said towards like allowing to feel, to feel maybe sad or a little bit disappointed, right? When I don't get what I wanted, but it's okay to feel that and yeah, digest it and go from there in a way, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think hurt people hurt people. And so if you're not dealing with that emotion, it's it's going to come out in, a, in an ugly way that probably hurts other people. And so, so acknowledging that emotion, it doesn't mean you have to acknowledge that emotion in front of the other person. And you can say, you know, like, oh man, I'm bummed. Like that's, that's totally valid as long as it's followed up by, uh, and thank you for taking care of yourself. Like that's something I like really appreciate or really respect something like that. Um, it's not that we have to hide our emotions, but we just don't want to put that emotional weight on them, but we still want to deal with that emotional weight. So it doesn't come out in like those hidden ways, uh, that happen all too often. Yeah, absolutely. And at the beginning of the podcast, you said that when you were first thinking of consent, you thought of it within the legal realm and eventually evolved. What's your definition for consent today? Ooh. Definition, I don't know that I have. I definitely talk about consent in terms of, I like. I say that I have a social emotional approach to consent. So there, there does need to be a legal definition. I am not the person to answer any of those questions. Um, but in terms of a definition, I, I think the one that I'm working with now is consent is the practice of creating and nurturing a mutually designed experience. It's very different from most other definitions out there. Um, but what I really like is that it has, A, it's a practice, B, it's creating and nurturing. Okay. So it has that like ongoing built right in, right? Creating is not enough. Um, mutually designed, it's both of you. It's not one person asking. It's not one person answering. It's an experience and it's going to be mutually designed. This definition applies to anything that's, that also is like ongoing in terms of like a makeout session, like sex, cuddling, anything that, um, if it's just truly like a kiss, I think we can use a much simpler definition that's closer to permission because it really can be defined, you know, kind of by a moment. Um, but when we're talking about sexual assault and rape, like that, that's not a one moment. That's an ongoing thing. And that's where I think that, um, that a definition that encompasses, um, that it's more than just permission is, is really important. Absolutely. And I, I really liked what you said there, because I do feel as, as all of these things, you know, there are gradients and there's shades of gray and, and there's all of these circumstantial things, but certainly in a case of a sexual assault, I mean, that was a lot of consent violations. And I like what you said about it being ongoing because I've heard conversations of people say, you know, if we don't stop uh, people sexualizing young teenage girls, you know, that's the first layer that builds a society that can eventually lead to somebody justifying assault or something like this. So, so, what do you think we could do as a society cohesively now internationally um, on our day to day to really take steps towards building a more consent aware society? You can't listeners can't see my face, but I'm like, 
Yeah, how, how how do we do that? That's a really good I'm question. I'm your educator. You, we need you right now, okay? If you don't know, then what's left for the rest of us? I think it's truly re... I think it's tr- rethinking consent. Um, if, if someone's a survivor and they're thinking about taking legal action, that's totally different. But in terms of navigating everyday interactions or for college students who are like, I've never done this before. I just have no experience. People who are new to practicing this and really are just not sure how to do it. Think about it in terms of how are you communicating throughout and how are you, and it doesn't have to be about permission. It can be about pleasure. It can be about, and not pleasure, not not getting pleasure, but communicating about pleasure. What do you like? What don't you like? How does this feel? Uh, do you want to try something new? Um, I actually recently had a post of many questions that uh, you can ask. It, it, the post was like, ask first, ask often. That's, I think, one of the biggest steps is, is, asking, is asking more and checking in more. Um, whew, beyond that, I think just breaking down, you know, rape culture of over-sexualizing young women, saying boys will be boys, uh, this idea that if you're in power, you have the right to someone else's body, all of those, which is just like so much of parenting, um, all of this all contributes to it. Um, in terms of personally, what people can do is um, work on asking and checking in more. And also a quick hack for people who are um, having difficulty setting boundaries, you can also ask questions as a way of like pausing and breaking it up, you know, being like, what do you like about doing this? And then, you know, and then you have a chance to say, well, like, I don't like this, but I do like that. Right. right? Cause then you're asking about them too, which is truly what it should be. It's you're both asking about each other. Assumptions can't be made. Absolutely. And giving ourselves that breather space for a pause, which mm-hmm. generally we want to fill. Yeah. Slower, yes. Everything slower is better. Well, I'm but it's not always true. However, going slowly in consent is so key. If you're rushing, if you're rushing sex, you're probably not doing a great job of practicing consent. Yeah. Yeah, pauses can feel awkward. Yeah. And we want to, I don't know, I was Actually, throughout the conversation, um, quite sometimes thinking about um, how much we might also sometimes just rush to give an answer and maybe not giving the right answer that is actually really reflecting what I really want and and wish. And also on top of that, actually, my mind works mostly, I don't know, I'm not sure. <laughs> no, but it's it, that's interesting because it's that, you know, even when you do give the wrong answer because you've rushed, and I've done this, I'm pretty sure most people have, it's giving yourself that um, permission to change course because there's also that responsibility that's placed on you setting in the right boundaries and, okay, I've said we're going left or right or whatever, and then you're you're too far down and you realize, actually, this is not at all what I wanted, but because I already said yes to this or something, then you feel guilt or you feel ashamed to, to go back and take a step. And that becomes a very complex situation. So we also need to learn to, to be what you said, constantly checking in on both sides, because then it's not just my responsibility, right? It's a mutual understanding that even if we do turn right or left, we will touch base as we go. So I'm never going to be in a position of lack of safety 
which is something you made me think about as you were speaking. Oh, you both make such important points. Yeah, delaying is is a great place to be in, right? And and do something while you delay, right? You can. It, it doesn't mean you have to delay touching at all. Just like delay that next thing until you're feeling it. Um, Emily Nagoski, who wrote a book recently called uh, "Come Come as You Are," come as you oh, yeah, are. Yeah. Yes. She writes about she writes about research. Um, that shows that men kind of need their, if you think about people like cars for a moment, um, they need their, their gas turned on. Like that's how they get aroused is like, they're like, go. And women need their brakes turned off. And, and like, it takes women a longer time to like get into it. And so sometimes, and this is like kind of an argument against um, what people call like enthusiastic consent, is that sometimes you you want to make a decision because you expect that you're going to get to a place where you're turned on and super enjoying it, but you're not there yet, but that's still okay. If you're checking in though, you get a chance to, to follow that yes, follow that interest, follow that curiosity, and then know that you're safe at any point to be like, I thought this would lead somewhere and it didn't. And that's okay. And like, and now we can continue on with something else. Um, and it's a safe, like, um, it's a safe place to write, to make mistakes. I don't love calling them mistakes, but to, it's, a, it's a safe place to be curious. We all have unconscious biases and assumptions about relationships and about other people. When we want to learn how to practice consent with another person, we need to realize that we are bringing something to the table as well. And we have a responsibility in this interaction. The more conscious we become about our own experiences and assumptions, the better we can learn how to practice consent with others. Thank you so much, Sarah. Just before we wrap things up, I'm just wondering if, you know, as a consent educator, you could just leave us with a bit of a message about what changes you've been seeing in the last few years in terms of consent and what expectation we can have as we're moving forward. I, I see a lot more conversation about teaching it younger which is super exciting because I think that really sets up a structure for how people understand their relationship with their body with the, when they're older. Um, it's not kind of neutral or teaching consent. It's teaching non-consent or teaching consent. You either send the message, right, that you get choice over your body or you send the message that you don't. And I think it's so important because it means that there's less like unlearning to do later and rethinking about your relationship with your body. Um, and I've seen so many articles about like how to implement consent culture in your home, how to teach your, you know, three-year-old about consent, uh, teach to, to model consent with your infant. Um, so that's definitely a change I'm noticing in terms of consent for I also noticed that adults are interested in consent. Mm -hmm. You know, adults are taking classes on what I think a lot of people would think would be um, classes for teenagers and college kids. A lot of adults are taking this because it is something that they never learned. So they have an idea of what's right, but but they're still unsure. I mean, I'm go, I signed up for a nonverbal consent class for two weeks. I'm a consent educator, right? I'm still practicing and teaching and learning at the same time. 
And then in terms of high school and college, I think that's where actually things are a little bit, I think that's where they can use more clarity, where it feels like they're still um, very stuck in the yes means yes, affirmative consent angle. And, and while that's absolutely better than nothing, I hope that the conversation becomes more about bodily autonomy rather than legalities. I see why they have it set up that way. But from my perspective, I just don't think that it leads to as wholehearted of a practice. Yeah. And that's, and I can only speak for um, what's happening in the States. I'm coming from like New York City, like an urban, urban area. Like this is not what's happening in Texas. Mm. Like, you know, this is not what's happening. I don't know what's happening in the South, but it's not this. Yeah. Um, it makes a difference, like where you are and how it's approached. But in terms of like changing the culture, I wish I had the answers. Yeah, communication is not binary, right? I mean, yes and no, those are just two words. Um, but like in any case, what we are communicating, it, it can't happen binary. It's, it's such a big spectrum. I liked so much what, what you said today. It was, for me personally, it was a huge insight and also gives some relief. You really showed that it's like not about preventing the bad and that we can all, all learn and share even that that we learn that we are learning i liked it a lot yeah yes i you just made me think of um something about the not the binary i'm thinking about ordering like a burger at a restaurant and how many questions you have to follow up after you say your first <laughs> yes right yes i want the burger how do you want it cooked do you want fries with that what do you want on top of it what sides do you want right like in our everyday life a yes isn't always a yes. Um, I don't know, I just thought of that analogy. I think it's no, a great metaphor. <laughs> it helps a lot. Absolutely, yeah, it's question. something that we can practice in our day-to-day -day lives. It's just conscious choice, conscious boundary setting, and just being aware of bodily autonomy and where consent fits in. Because if we are able to implement that, I would argue to say that we can have a more harmonious society. So. Thank you so much, Sarah, for being here. We have loved listening to you. I think we could hear your voice for hours. Nico, I don't know if there's something else you'd like to, to add. I also just want to say thank you. And for everybody who listens and listened, follow Comprehensive Consent on Instagram. And do also check out our website if you want to sign our petition on consent, where we're trying to introduce the concept of consent into the legal discourse. And if you have any questions, you can always contact us. And we look forward to chatting to you on the next episode. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. The discourse on consent differs geographically and here at Conversations on Consent we have a vastly international team and we constantly ask ourselves why would our you know, colleague in Turkey or South Africa not enjoy the same level of protection as someone in Germany or Canada or why would they not have the same amount of rights when it comes to their bodily autonomy. This is why we're aiming to create a petition that meets a standard where we can operate globally as citizens that can live and work anywhere and enjoy the same protections. So if you agree with this, please support us and sign the petition today.